Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. If you've heard any of my past podcasts, you may have heard me say a thing or two about the toxic diet culture out there. And if you haven't, then I'll just be really brief here in saying that I find it absolutely horrible. The messages that are out there and the beliefs that someone has more value, worth, and is somehow more, quote unquote, healthy if they're in a smaller body, they're absolutely insane. And what gets to me most of all are that the vast majority of people truly still believe so much of this. And it's so hard to combat the diet culture when we're constantly hearing and seeing the same things over and over again from multiple sources, medical doctors, advertisements, and the multitude of influencers out there on social media. And I always hope that there can be something that can be done to open the eyes to people out there who are promoting these messages and perpetuating it. I just want them to see how wrong and toxic the diet culture is and just stop promoting it. And at best, to instead send messages to try and stop encouraging everyone else to believe it. So my hope is that over time, if enough people start doing this, the beliefs and the culture can just change. And really, I just want people to stop being so hurt and damaged by all of this. And my dream is that one day this is going to happen. And so it's people like our guest today who make me believe that one day the stream of mine is actually going to come to fruition. Johnny Landells, he's a former diet culture obsessed fat loss coach turned intuitive eating coach and health at every size advocate. He actually spent years fighting his own body and believing he just needed to be more disciplined and motivated to maintain weight loss long term. And so a couple of years ago, he started learning about disordered eating and intuitive eating and he slowly pivoted his coaching and retrained. And since then, he's not looked back. He now helps clients break free from food and body obsession and helps them end their constant mental battle with food while using strength training to help them fall in love with exercise again. All right. Well, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this chat. Me too. Um, No, always love other professionals who work with uh, people who are struggling. So, you know, that being said, people who maybe don't know you, um, like, we're the typical people that come in your office and kind of seek out your help. So there are a wide variety of people that I see, but I would say that the individuals who um, most frequently walk into my virtual office are those that are struggling with hypothalamic amenorrhea, which we'll go into in a little bit more detail throughout this podcast, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But people that typically are struggling with their relationship with food and maybe really, really enjoy exercise, but maybe the tables have turned and they've taken it too far and they find it really difficult to cut back and find a healthy balance. 
So it's usually those people who had very healthy pursuits around moving their body and eating a nutritious diet, but those intentions slowly became more into instead of, oh, I get to do this, I can do this if I want to, to I have to, I'm worried about what will happen if I don't. So that disordered eating, eating disorder tendencies, we slowly unravel that so that people rebuild a healthy relationship with food and movement and their bodies and ultimately regain their cycles if they have gone missing. Mm. So probably lots of people listening are kind of going like, yeah, that's me. And I think that is a really slippery slope. You know, there's so much out there that's promoting exercise. And, you know, I, I get that question a lot when people come to see me like, well, how much exercise should I, should, you know, I be doing, or, you know, there's so, I look on the internet too, just to see what is out there. Like, what are people kind of confused about? And it is confusing. There's one article that says, oh, just, you know, do X amount. And another one that's like promoting, like, you need to be doing this amount. And it sounds like daunting. And I can see why people kind of feel like this compulsion to have to do so much every day, even with like this, you know, obsession with 10,000 steps. And then I just read like last week that, no, you actually don't need to do that much. So like, what do people ask? What do people ask you? And like, how do you think they fall into that? Oh, I have to do this much versus like, I actually really enjoyed it at one point. Now it's this like, have to. Yeah, that's such a good question. And I agree, there's so much confusing information out there. Um, I mean, my degree in exercise physiology, we learned that, and, and this is what I tell people all the time, that the healthy amount of exercise for you is very contextual to your health, you know, if you have any health conditions that you're managing, and also your lifestyle, and also and so like exercise should fit into your lifestyle, not the other way around. You shouldn't be kind of like making exercise the primary thing that you have to focus on at every waking moment and other things in your life get missed out on because of that. Mm-hmm. And then I also think the enjoyment factor, because if we're thinking about movement and really this is the important thing, like it's not just exercise, which we deem as kind of like structured, setting aside a time to do it, um, kind of like going to a workout class or going for um, that walk at that certain time. It's not just those kinds of movement or exercise that's beneficial. It's incidental movement and all these kinds of things. And if we're looking across our lifetime, the benefits that we gain from movement come from little and often because that is usually the most sustainable. So when we're thinking about, well, what's the healthy amount of movement for me? There is no one size fits all. If we're looking at the physical activity guidelines, those are general recommendations for healthy populations. And I really want to stipulate that healthy populations, right? For people that are managing health conditions, that might look different. It might look slightly, you know, slightly more intense exercise for some people, slightly less intense exercise for others, slightly higher volume, slightly lower volume. But our physical activity guidelines give us a general recommendations of things that we should slowly work towards. But again, they're not rigid rules, they're guidelines. So that means we know that they generally reduce the risk of things like chronic health conditions, but they don't take into account 
a single person sitting in front of us, which is where you need more individualized and, and tailored advice. So what I would say to people is if you're in a place where you feel like I'm completely avoiding exercise because I'm really like so nervous about like the amount that I have to meet. And if I don't meet that, then I'm a failure. You need to kind of, okay, go, what's a more reasonable standard for me? Because some movement is better than being completely avoidant. And it's about approaching it with how can I build my confidence to find something that I like and I enjoy? And then on the flip side of things, if you feel like you're in a place where you feel compelled to do a lot of movement, you feel really nervous to kind of cut down or change your exercise routine, and it's really having an impact on your life in terms of you feel really anxious around changes or you're really like nervous to take a break or a rest day, that's where I would say, okay, you probably need to look at the standards that you're holding yourself to as well and ask yourself, could I reasonably commit to doing this for the rest of my life or would it exhaust me? Could I see myself doing this amount and intensity of movement when I'm in my 50s or my 60s or am I just pushing myself to you know, my capacity? Mm-hmm. So it's really about going, where is this messy middle ground where we're doing some movement, it fits in, it helps and it adds to our overall well-being and our life instead of taking away from it. Mm. And are we doing kinds of movement that we enjoy? So I hate answering that question because I mean I love answering that question. It's so nuanced, but I think everyone listening will be like, oh, that's such an annoying answer because I want like a black and white kind of definitive, I can follow this and this is the right thing to do. Whereas similar to nutrition, it isn't this one size fits all approach. You know, and it's even, even almost hate that this is kind of going hand in hand with like nutrition and exercise. I think they're two totally separate things. And I hate that we've kind of put them together in our society. I think, you know, to your point, you said, you know, exercise can help prevent some kind of illnesses or kind of promote some kind of health effects. Right. And I think the things get really muddied when kind of say like, this term that's out there, right? Like exercise more, eat less, right? It's kind of setting up like this eating disordered mindset and tying exercise and food and exercise with weight versus like the purpose of exercise is not to lose weight. And I think that really gets confusing for people. And then that's where the eating disorder mentality comes in with exercise. And I don't know what you think about that, but that's my my take on it. They get so heavily intertwined. I think from a very young age, we absorb these messages around us, unless we are someone that's had, I guess, the opportunity to have role models who have very healthy relationships with movement and with food. You know, the messages that we absorb from diet culture and, you know, like body and beauty ideals are that exercise is for the purpose of changing your body. Instead of exercise is for the purpose of being in your body Mm -hmm. and it's for the purpose of, you know, for some people it acts as an element of connection. So they might do some social exercise, going on a walk with a friend, or it might be something that you see as one source of achievement in your life. So like, let's say that you really like sport 
and that competitive side gets to, I guess, come out in you when you when you do sport. And when we have that one message repeatedly reinforced, that exercise is just for the point of reducing, changing, manipulating our body, we lose all of the other benefits that comes with moving and exercising, which is, you know, from my point of view, the much more important thing because exercise is a way of promoting our overall well-being. And it is a privilege to enjoy exercise. Like not every person will enjoy movement, but if we can get to a place where we see it as more than and separate from anything to do with our body weight, shape, or size, (laughs) the ability to kind of have a relationship with movement that feels peaceful, calm, and can be sustained throughout our entire life is much more achievable. And that takes a lot of unlearning. And that's not easy. No, and I love that you said that, right? Because like, well, how do we get there? (laughs) What do you think needs to happen? But I think the first step is really, really recognizing what are my fundamental beliefs about exercise, right? Until we pinpoint that, we're not really sure what your drivers are, what your intentions are behind why you're choosing to do movement or on the flip side, why you're avoiding movement altogether. And those belief systems are intertwined with our thoughts and ultimately our actions. Not only that, we also have to go and look at our experiences, right? So our experiences growing up, our experiences in our most recent past, any trauma that we've had around movement, and really use that as kind of like emotional reasons why we might overdo exercise or again, avoid it completely, right? So for some people who might be um, feeling compelled to continue exercising, they might have a belief that if they stop doing this, they're going to quote unquote, lose all of their progress. So it keeps them in this like fear mentality of I have to keep going, I have to keep doing. At the same time, they might have people around them that are praising them for doing that level of movement and seeing it as so disciplined and them seeing themselves as the healthy one, because that is the kind of reinforcement they get from the people around them. And that emotion that they get from that, that good feeling makes it really difficult to let go or change their approach to exercise. Because if they don't have that, they're really, really worried about how they might get that, you know, love or attention from the other people around them. And then if we go and look at the flip side of things, and maybe there's this belief around exercise that it has to be about, you know, weight loss or changing our body or like having like exercise, having to be really intense and that being really, really uncomfortable. And maybe we have experiences of shame or um, maybe we've experienced like weight stigma and that's kind of led to deep shame, disgust, and, and kind of avoidance, we can see how that would deeply kind of affect a person's ability to approach exercise from an open-minded place. So there's a lot of healing that has to happen around, uh, I guess, our belief systems and our, you know, emotions, experiences. And, and we have to kind of go, all right, well, why don't we slowly tra- try and challenge those and set ourselves up by doing some approachable little challenges to expose ourselves to a new experience 
and see if we can build in some new evidence that maybe things can be different now. And that's a slow process, but that's ultimately what gets people from, you know, both ends, either like avoidance or, you know, compulsion back towards that place of balance, not just from the amount or the type that they do, but also their beliefs around exercise being more sustainable and it emotionally feeling from a really good, healthy place. So, you know, I, for anyone who's listened, I know I have my own story. I've shared like my own eating disordered stuff with exercise, everything you're saying, like, yeah, that was me. Um, you know, so I get that part, but, you know, also, you know, I work with people now who have, you know, this relationship with exercise, not only the identity of like, okay, I'm the healthy one. This is kind of something about me that's, you know, people know me for, and I'm always getting praised and kind of that fear of letting go of that, right. It's part of their daily life, but also, you know, tying it to the food, it's these, these eating disorder rules, right. If I don't exercise, I don't eat, or I earn my food if I exercise. And so there's these rules. And then how do you work with people that if you're maybe getting them to exercise less or have a different relationship with movement, let go of those rules. Yeah, I think the element of compensation is so tricky, right? Because oftentimes people are doing a lot of mental Tetris to make it Mm -hmm. acceptable for them to do one change. So if I accept that maybe my body needs more nourishment, then I can make that acceptable by changing how I do my movement. And maybe it's so sneaky that they don't even recognize that it's happening, right? Maybe they're doing um, a little bit more, like a few more things around the house, or maybe it's just that they, you know, take off more things on their to-do list instead of adding a particular extra amount at X, Y, or Z time. But it still all adds up. And it's really about kind of how can we create that awareness of when this is happening and how do we get to a point where we can notice the urge to compensate or do something different, give ourselves a moment to actually go, oh, is this going to lead to the greater good of my recovery? And then how do we implement a a process where we can not go forward and do the thing that our urge is telling us to do? How can we take that opposite action? And that opposite action is often incredibly uncomfortable, right? If your brain is screaming at you that this extra nutrition is going to cause X, Y, or Z change to your body, and that's a a really innate fear that you have within you, then that really loud voice telling you to go for an extra walk or do extra movement is incredibly difficult to ignore because you know when when you ignore it, it, you're going to have to sit with some discomfort. And you have to build in distress tolerance skills. The only way out of, I can't, I guess that compensation trap is through it, which means that you have to sit through those uncomfortable feelings. And I think for a lot of people hearing that can be really distressing in itself because there's this assumption that when you experience a, an emotion that you deem distressing, negative, or uncomfortable, you believe that it's going to be exponential. 
and that it's never going to end. And that if you experience it for two minutes, then it means that you're experiencing it for two days. And it's really about kind of navigating into this space where we become really curious about that uncomfortable feeling. And we go, if we just pay attention to it, and maybe we set up this kind of experiment where we try to not compensate, what actually happens with that feeling? Is it actually exponential? Or is it that it's a little bit uncomfortable, but then if we check in with ourselves at kind of 20 minutes and 40 minutes, one hour, that it probably changes in intensity, right? And how do we know, how do we have evidence that feelings change? Well, if we look at the opposite end of the spectrum, if we look at something like joy or excitement, that things we don't typically kind of like hyperfixate on, when they happen, they don't last forever. Our emotions go through cycles. So getting out of that trap isn't just about how can we set up you, how can we set you up for like a behavioral success? Like how can we make um, uh, avoiding those urges, like the, 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 the thing that you want to go towards? And also how do we set you up with better coping strategies so that you can work your way through those tricky moments and, and get out of them knowing that regardless of what happens, you will be okay. You are safe. You can handle this feeling. And that is ultimately what gets you into a better behavioral pattern and untangles that web connecting food and exercise. Yeah, that's very true. And most people probably haven't heard of like distress tolerance, like tolerating the distress of these emotions and this experience. Um, and is that a lot of the work and the skills you're helping people with? hundred percent. Yeah. One of many, but I think that's a really fundamental skill. I would say distress tolerance and second to that is self-compassion. Those are two fundamental skills that I think are incredibly necessary, not just to navigate recovery, but if we look at it, we're always going to have challenges in life. Mm -hmm. We're always going to have difficult moments. And these are skills that are completely applicable to all areas of our life. They're just not skills that we we really get taught unless we've gone through either a process of self-development where we've seen these skills as really helpful and necessary and we've gone out and kind of built them ourselves mm -hmm. or maybe we've kind of had a difficult moment in our life with our mental health or a really big life challenge and we've gone to get support and we've, we've built the skills with the help of someone like a therapist, a counselor, a psychotherapist. And then we kind of go like, oh, actually, these are really good things to have on hand. So yeah, distress tolerance, self-compassion, among others, but those are definitely my favorite. So if somebody comes in and they don't actually realize that the things they're doing are disordered, like maybe they think, you know, I'm just being quote unquote, very healthy, um, eating quote unquote, very healthy, like how difficult is it for them to just really accept like, okay, maybe I do have an illness. Maybe I am doing something that's actually quote unquote unhealthy, hurting myself. Yeah. Look, I think it's really about kind of when we think about like what's quote unquote healthy versus unhealthy, it's really, like I said before, it's so nuanced. It's so contextual. Mm -hmm. So it's really about asking, okay, like if you're doing X, Y, or Z amount of exercise, are you eating X, Y, or Z way? 
Like how does that impact your life positively and negatively, right? Because sometimes we overinflate the positives when we're in a place where we don't really want to give up or change things about our, our habits and our relationship with food and exercise. And we kind of brush things under the rug that are some of the consequences. And it's just bringing those to light and kind of just going in a really non-judgmental way. We can't ignore these, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they do outweigh the benefits that our relationship with exercise and, and food is giving us. It's just that our values might be around kind of um, controlling our body and having to look a certain way um, and that's what's driving us to like not want to let go of these habits or it might be because of safety. Like, you know, uh, these habits developed at a time in my life where there was so much chaos and this is the calm to the chaos and they might not want to see any problems with what they're doing because they're really concerned that if they don't have that how will they cope how will they feel safe so it is just about kind of going like okay what are the pros and cons of this and also going if we know that we're going to change things I think people are really nervous that you know if you go and seek help that a health professional is going to come along and like rip the rug out from underneath you and just go like, you have to change everything and do a 180 degree turn and um, you'll, you'll just be okay. This is just the way out. Like you'll just get through it. Whereas what what's really necessary is kind of going like, okay, we figure out that these are the reasons that these things developed. If we want to change them, we have to give you a new safety bubble while we're changing your behaviors and show you that these new habits and these new approaches can be just as good. Well, most of the time, if not better, most of the time Mm -hmm. they're better than what you've been doing before. But it does have to come from the individual. There has to be that moment of acceptance and willingness. And I think one of the best ways that I've found to approach that is to always say to people, you can always go back. If we try out this new thing and you absolutely hate it, you can always go back. And people are like, what? Like, yeah, you can always go back to your eating disorder if you really want it. Most of the time, people are shocked by that. But it is about not putting yourself in this box where you feel like you have no way out. Mm. When you feel like you have no way out, it's claustrophobic. You don't want to do the thing. Mm -hmm. But if you go, you know what? I'm just going to try this for seven days. And if I absolutely hate it, if I see no benefit, she said I could always go back. And that makes it feel more approachable. And it's never failed me because I used to use that in my own journey myself. (laughs) That's a great approach. (laughs) Yeah. Because I think that there's that fear, right? So for yourself, when you went through that, was that like kind of what got you through just thinking like, oh gosh, that fear of change? The fear of change felt really overwhelming. And I think oftentimes because there is so much to change, you don't know where to begin. Mm -hmm. And so for me, obviously support was fundamental. Mm -hmm. And I had different forms of support in my eating disorder, sort of eating journey, and then separately in my journey recovering from hypothalamic amenorrhea. 
but I never went, oh, I have to do this and this and this and this all at the same time. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this one thing and I'm going to just gently approach it. And if I don't like the change after X amount of days or X amount of time, I can go back. And most of the time after like, you know, seven days, I was like, no, I can keep going with this. This is fine. And what develops is this kind of new normal, mm-hmm. right? The thing before that felt initially quite hard and challenging and maybe even a little bit upsetting, it now doesn't cause any distress. You don't really think twice about it and you kind of just get on with with life. And I've, I've done that. I did that, past tense, because now recovered. But like I did that for both healing my relationship with food and exercise um, because it just allowed me to have, I guess, a more open mind about the experience. Otherwise, I would just completely avoid it. You find that, well, I'm curious, do you share that you are recovered with people you work with? 100%. Yeah, I think it's really important to be transparent Mm -hmm. um, about the fact that, you know, I went through my own struggles and recovery takes a long time and it's a bumpy road. I think often on social media, we see people who are recovered and we see the glamorous side of things and we just assumed it was like smooth sailing and that was not the case for me it took me years to get better and once I was in a very healed place I was also very cognizant of the fact that I would only start sharing my story once I felt fully healed so I waited a couple of years. I was like, I'm just going to like live in the recovered bubble and enjoy it for a couple of years. I know I'm incredibly passionate about helping people, but I know that I'll be even in a better place after that kind of little gap of going like, no, I've I've definitely got this mm-hmm. before I was very open with sharing my story. But I started sharing my story probably back in 2017, 2018, mm-hmm. and I've never looked back. Yeah, I I always ask because I think that does build that trust. And um, that's another reason I do this podcast is to bring on other providers who have their own journey, their own story. I think it is powerful to hear, yes, you can achieve recovery. Because I think to your point, people kind of hear that and go, oh, yeah, easy for you to say, you know, like, especially if someone listening is going through it right now or kind of on the fence about if they want to start treatment or seek help and kind of going, oh yeah, it's easy for you guys to say you're you're there already. It's not easy. And I think that needs to be said loud and clear. Like it's not easy. You do need a lot of support and it's scary and it can take a long time um, and you can flip in and out of treatment and that's totally normal too. So, um, you know, if, if somebody is, maybe thinking of coming to work with you, say, um, and they're kind of on the fence, like what kind of, I guess, what kind of message would you have for them if they're kind of listening right now kind of going, I don't know, I don't know what to do. I would say if you're nervous, it probably means that you're about to do something really good for yourself. (laughs) Every single moment where I've had growth in my recovery journey, before I started, I felt terrified. And I took the leap anyway, Mm -hmm. even when I was unsure if it was going to like work out perfectly, because I knew that doing something was better than staying where I was. 
because ultimately that was the most unhelpful thing. And I remember in particular, probably the, the one form of treatment that helped me the most was I did an intensive outpatient program where I was really lucky to meet a therapist who's still my therapist today, even though we talk about completely different things. Um, but when I got the call that I had been accepted into the program and that these were the days that they had available, I remember getting off the phone call and like just crying my eyes out because I was both so ready for change and extraordinarily terrified. Mm -hmm. I was so overcome with emotion because I was like, this means that I have to do the things that are going to be hard, but ultimately get me out of this really crappy place Mm -hmm. in my eating disorder. And so that was my reminder from that point onwards, that whenever anything felt really terrifying, it meant I was probably about to do something that was going to be really good for my overall well-being. And that ended up being the case when I challenged my relationship with food and, you know, did little fun food experiences that I was like, oh, I really want to do this, but ultimately helped me feel more confident around food. And similarly, when I experimented and changed, reduced you know, tried new forms of movement. I was ultimately really terrified to do that, but it ended up showing me that I could have these different experiences. And actually the world kept turning and my life got exponentially better. So if you're listening, that would be my best advice is it change is scary, but staying where you are is scarier. Gosh, absolutely. That's a great message. Um, and, you know, the people that work with you, they're lucky because you do get it. And it sounds like you're very compassionate. So um, I kind of similarly kind of switching gears a little bit. Um, you know, you also work with people who are struggling with their periods. Um, and that does go along with eating disorders as well. So um, I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because we don't often talk about that. I know they took that out of the criteria for diagnostic purposes, but it's still there um so just curious like what do you see with the people you're working with like what are the symptoms they're coming in with yeah and I think it's really good that we start with that clarification that the severity of your disordered eating or your eating disorder is absolutely not tied to whether or not you have a menstrual cycle some people are just more genetically predisposed to losing their menstrual cycles than others but it isn't this thing where we deem you quote unquote recovered when you've got a cycle or quote unquote not sick enough if you don't lose your period. That's absolutely not the case. And I think that's a really tricky thing when we're talking about eating disorders and hypothalamic amenorrhea. But for anyone that's never heard that term before, uh, hypothalamic amenorrhea is the loss of your menstrual cycle for three months or longer. It's a form of what we call secondary amenorrhea. So secondary amenorrhea means at some point in your life, you've had your own natural menstrual cycle and then it's disappeared, right? And this is particularly important to know that if you are on the pill or taking an oral contraceptive um, or another form of hormonal contraceptive, that it can mask the presence of hypothalamic amenorrhea. So it is really tricky to diagnose if you are on a form of contraceptive. 
Now, the reason that it happens is due to three main things. Your body is undernourished for its own energy requirements. It feels overly stressed by the amount or the intensity of exercise that you're doing. That could include incidental movement and or you're experiencing significant psychological stress. It's usually a combination of those. So the people that come to see me, some people that come to see me have regular periods and they're just struggling with their relationship with food and exercise. And some people who come to see me are the same and their periods are missing. The way that I approach it is that your period returning needs to be as, uh, I guess, a side effect of you healing your relationship with food and exercise and your body, right? Simply putting the pressure on yourself that like, I must regain my cycle in like six months time. And sure, uh, you can have those goals for yourself, but like, let's imagine you get to that six month point and your period does come back. Could you truly say to yourself, have I healed my relationship with with food and exercise and my body? Like if you woke up and your your periods were back tomorrow, could you tell yourself that? Could you wholeheartedly say like, yes, I have the healthiest relationship with food, the healthiest relationship with my body and the healthiest relationship with exercise. So that's my approach that I take. Mm -hmm. It should be a side effect because that means that you don't just like get the period once or sporadically. You get the periods and they stay because you've built the habits that make your body feel safe. Okay. So is there, are there labs or there tests to know if it's that is what's going on or if it's something like, like PCOS or if there's some other kind of hormonal condition? Like how do you diagnose that and know that that's actually what's going on with somebody? Such a good question. So for anyone listening, I have a three-part series on my podcast, all about the differences between hypothalamic amenorrhea and PCOS. I'm pretty sure it's episodes 65, 66, and 67. So I can send you those links. Otherwise, my podcast is called Holistic Health Radio. Um, But there are significant differences between those two. So PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, has a similar, I guess, set of main symptoms in the fact that like your period is missing. But for most people with PCOS, they just have irregular periods, not that it's completely absent. And the reason for those missing periods is completely different to what it is like the driving force behind why hypothalamic amenorrhea occurs. So for most people that have PCOS, It is um, changes with their body's ability to handle or use insulin. So insulin sensitivity that causes the ovaries to malfunction, which disrupts ovulation, right? So the main forms of treatment for PCOS are really targeting your body's ability um, to have better insulin sensitivity. We'll leave it at that for that one. Because I know there's like there's a lot of harmful messaging around what that looks like. But for most people, it just looks like really assessing whether PCOS is actually the case. And the lifestyle changes don't have to be drastic for most people for their cycles to become more regular, right? So in terms of hypothalamic amenorrhea, it's actually your brain. So your hypothalamus is in your brain that senses stress, right? 
stress from inadequate energy intake or what we call low energy availability mm-hmm. um, from undernourishing your body, over-exercising your body, or too much stress, that then shuts down the production of our hormones that drive ovulation and our period. So if we're looking at labs, so if we're looking at diagnostic criteria, getting to a diagnosis of hypothalamic amenorrhea is what we call a diagnosis of exclusion. So we're ruling out all the other potential causes of a missing period, thyroid disturbances, problems with our pituitary gland, um, and then we look at our hormonal panels, right? So um, looking at our FSH levels, our LH levels, our estradiol or our estrogen and our progesterone. And it's the ratios of these hormones that can give us a better indication as to what is particularly going on for a person and differentiating between hypothalamic amenorrhea and PCOS. So it's really important to go and see a provider who can read those labs effectively and go, it's more likely this than this. In addition to that, we have to take a detailed lifestyle history. It's those lifestyle histories that can give us a real insight into people's habits, relationships with food, lifestyles, and that can give a better picture of what is also going on. That's fantastic information. Thank you. I'm sure this get lots of people thinking because we don't really talk about all this um, and people don't really know much about what hormone levels, you know, to ask for labs. And I don't think people really go to their doctors and talk about these things. So I really appreciate you sharing all that information. Happy to. A regular cycle is so much more than fertility. Our hormones impact our bones, our mental health, our heart health. So if a doctor's ever told you, quote unquote, it's fine, don't (laughs) worry about it, uh, do have concern because it is like a monthly report card that is our body telling us like everything's happy, healthy, okay. And, And that is incredibly important for our overall health as people with periods or anyone assigned female at birth. Something you said actually kind of sparked a question. So if somebody's on like the birth control pill and they don't know if they might have anything going on that might be, you know, biological, um, as you brought up, it could be concerned for heart health, bone health, and all these kinds of things. Um, what should they do or any thoughts about that? So it's such a deeply personal choice because mm-hmm. we have to look at like, well, why is this person choosing to use contraception? Right. Because we have to make sure a person feels really safe that they are protected if they are sexually active from preventing a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing to discuss. If that person has said, oh, well, my periods weren't missing. And then the doctor said I should just go on the pill. And then my quote unquote periods came back. Those are actually withdrawal bleeds. So those are artificial bleeds mm-hmm. that are happening as a withdrawal from basically the active pills in your pill pack when you take the sugar pills or the non-active pills. So that is probably an indication that we could be curious about what would happen if you decided to trial coming off of them. And again, that is a decision that you should be making with your healthcare team, your treatment team, because it can give us really good information about where your body is at in terms of sufficient and adequate nourishment 
um, and relationship with exercise and amount being balanced for you. And um, I would kind of approach it with the, like the view of, look, if you come off of it, everything's happy and healthy and cycles are regular, then you can go back on the contraception if it's working for you, right? If we come off of it and, you know, things really aren't kickstarting, there's probably really good evidence that we need to look at what would need to be changed so that your body feels in a better balance, feels safe, can have its own natural period because the health consequences of not having a cycle or the pill masking the fact that you don't have a cycle are the fact that your bone health suffers. So the pill is not a sufficient amount of estrogen for your body to kind of protect its bones. Um, heart health is also impacted by that as well. And then other signs of low energy availability, like, you know, brittle hair, skin and nails or dull skin or feeling tired all the time and low in energy, feeling like you have significant mood swings all the time or irritability or, you know, you're calm one second and really upset and angry the next, feeling like you're always like sore from your workouts, never really recovering. All of those can give us keys that maybe the balance isn't quite right for you. Okay. Yeah, I can just imagine questions coming. Well, I have the IED, I have the Norplant, I have take the shot. Like, oh my gosh, so many things kind of may come up for people just thinking like, well, how would I yeah. know? All right. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like it is, it is just about kind of working with someone who has more expertise in this area and can ask the right questions and can work out whether trialing coming off of that is the right thing for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, you have given us so much information. Um, thank you so, so much. Um, people want to work with you. People want to find out more about you. How can they find you? So I am pretty much on all social platforms under the name at Sarah Liz King. So you can find me on Instagram, TikTok. I'm not as active, but I'm trying to get more active and on YouTube. Um, and then my website is sarahlizking.com. So we have a contact form there where you can get in touch about our one-to-one coaching and group coaching options, as well as we have um, an online personal training program that is very non-diet health at every size focused. So lots of options for anyone out there who's wanting to get support on having that healthy relationship with exercise and food and your body and regaining those menstrual cycles fantastic all right sarah thank you so much really appreciate everything you just shared lots and lots of things to think about i'm sure for everyone so really appreciate it thank you so much for having me This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.